Blog Talk Radio.
of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, November 7th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to yet another edition of our program, this special edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the mass demonstrations uh, held in the capital of Ethiopia in support of the government of President uh, Abiy Ahmed. The Sudan Professional Association has rejected uh, the offer by the military coup makers to establish another coalition government. Opposition parties in Mali 
are demanding that the military leaders stay on course uh, for the transition to civilian rule. And uh, the economic community of West African states are continuing to pressure the military junta to withdraw uh, from their positions of power in the government. In the second hour, we listen uh, to a detailed uh, report, uh, two detailed reports on events uh, in the Horn of African nation of Ethiopia, uh, where the Western-backed rebels are attempting uh, to overthrow uh, the government of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. Also, there was a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the status of the COVID-19 pandemic and the rollout of the vaccinations uh, in uh, Africa. Finally, we further examine issues impacting Africa and the international community, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude, and uh, we're going to uh, feature uh, once again uh, the African Brothers Band International from the West African state of Ghana, uh, the band that was led uh, by the now ancestor, uh, Nana Kwame Ampudu, and uh, this album is entitled Locomotive Train. Let's listen in. One, two, three, four. Hey, 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 hey,
Oh, David. 
are all dead. Alive. Jesus. Now, I beg you, make you all help me. Tell every man and woman where he is inside this world. Something about love. That makes everybody hold in love tight. For this world we day inside. Number one, living in peace. Number two, fear. Yes. Number three, corner, corner. Is day inside proper? Alive? No. Now here we go. One, two, three, go. What? 
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the African Brothers Band International. <laughs> yes, uh, with the album uh, entitled Locomotive Train, uh, the African Brothers Band International, under the leadership of uh, Nana Kwame Amparu. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, the worldwide uh, radio broadcast. This special edition uh, of our program on Sunday, uh, November 7th, uh, 2021, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire report, and these are some of the headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with the current uh, situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. The Addis Ababa City Communication Bureau announced that so far about 10,000 city residents have registered arms and urged people to be vigilant in keeping their villages uh, peace in peace and security. Uh, Bureau Communication Head Jonas Zawudi yesterday said the arms registration in the metropolis has been conducting have been conducted in a smooth manner. Addis Ababa should safeguard the peace and security of their city, and they have to expose the individuals that are working in connivance uh, with the TPLF terrorist groups, he noted. Any person, either individual or private organizations, uh, who is residing in the city should register their arms soon than later, uh, going to nearby police stations before the deadline. According to him, Ethiopians have been passing through many troubles in various years until the present time. Thus, Ethiopians would overcome the current challenges, uh, like previous ones, uh, through standing together and defeating internal as well as external enemies of the country. The terrorist TPLF and its allies are committing various atrocities on civilian people with the help of some Western countries. He said, adding that, uh, but uh, they could not defeat Ethiopians who are now joining the Ethiopian National Defense Forces in droves. It was learned that uh, Addis Ababa is staging a rally. They did stage a rally uh, yesterday to denounce the undue external pressure on Ethiopia and terrorist uh, TPLF atrocities. And uh, another news uh, taking place uh, in the African continent, of course, in the Republic of Sudan. There are new developments as the Sudanese Professional Association, the SPA, which was the spearhead of the December uh, 2019 revolution, or actually 2018 revolution, uh, yesterday uh, proposed a new political charter to overthrow the military council and established a civilian government without the military component. The draft charter comes as a direct negotiations between Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak and uh, the military council are deadlocked. The military wants the formation of a new broad-based government, while Hamdok demands the reinstatement of his cabinet, which will carry out new reforms. The purpose of the new declaration is to protect and complete the civil democratic transition through peaceful resistance and to the overthrow of the military council and the formation of a four-year civilian government committed to the goals of the December Revolution and the abolition of the 2019 uh, constitutional document. Also, the uh, draft says that a national figure would be chosen as the prime minister who would form a transitional cabinet of no more than 20 ministers. Also, the sovereign council will consist of five figures and no more. 
The head of government, the ministers, and the collegial presidency will not include political leaders but national figures supportive of the revolution and its goals. On October 25th, the military council overthrew uh, the interim prime minister, Abdallah Hamdad, along uh, with the entire interim government. Uh, after trading accusations with the civilian component of, over the failure to implement security reforms, the proposed new charter sparked widespread controversy on social media over a provision uh, speaking about the selection of a national figure to lead the transitional government. Many said this disposition implies replacing Hamdok with another prime minister. The critics also pointed out that the constitutional document of 2019 is linked uh, to the Juba peace agreement. Instead, they point uh, out that the constitutional document includes mechanisms allowing it uh, to be amended and to end the participation of the military component in the transitional process. In return, the Sudanese Professional Association issued a video along with written statements to clarify its position saying they have no objection to the Prime Minister Hamdok, reminding that they were ones, the ones who proposed his name for the position. The intent of this proposal is to explain how to form the civil authority once the coup leaders are ousted. The Sudanese professionals uh, stress that the main objective of this draft is to end the participation of the military component in the transitional government. He underscored uh, that um, the General Al-Burhan remained an obstacle uh, that prevented the abolition of the laws inherited from the ousted regime. Also, he has opposed the dismissal of the Islamist cadre from the state apparatus and agencies. They further said that the army and its militia hindered the economic reforms as they control 80% of the economic resources in the country and refused to transfer their companies uh, to the government. The text proposes uh, to dissolve the security apparatus, saying that the current General Intelligence Services has resumed the same practices as has been proven ineffective. Following the collapse of the al-Bashir regime, the Sudanese Professional Association split into two factions. However, recently the two factions were on the verge of reunification when the October 25th coup occurred. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Mali, a coalition of political parties uh, on Saturday uh, met uh, to demand that the country's junta organize elections in 2022. Mali's army rulers have been accused of dragging their feet on the transition calendar, which prescribes a return to civilian rule by February. We, the political parties and groupings of political parties of the framework for a successful transition in Mali, no longer understand the totally contradictory logic of the government which endangers the evolution of the transition and relations with our partners concerning the electoral timetable, institutional reforms, and the revision of text, said Amadou Kweta, spokesperson for the political parties and groupings of political parties in the framework of exchange for a successful transition in Mali. In recent weeks, the United Nations and the Economic Community of West African States Delegations uh, have been uh, to Bamako in a bid to pressurize the authorities to move towards organizing elections. Prime Minister Shogwao Miaga has said that the polls could be delayed for months. 
In case of a prolongation of the transition without a consensual debate with all the sons of this country, there uh, we have legal means that are guaranteed to us by the Malian Constitution. We will very soon also invade the Boulevard of Independence very, very soon to make ourselves heard, said Abakrai Ture, an opposition activist. Mali's transition was rocked uh, by May coup d'etat, in which junta leader, Colonel Lassimi Guata, overthrew uh, the interim administration in which he served as vice president. Civil society groups have accused the military of seeking to hold on to power. Uh, West African leaders are meeting on Sunday with Mali and Guinea at the top of the agenda. And finally, in neighboring uh, Guinea, Conakry, an extraordinary summit of the heads of state of the economic community of West African states opened earlier today in Accra, Ghana. It was devoted to the examination of the political developments in the Republic of Guinea as well as the Republic of Mali. That's according to an ECOWAS statement uh, that was released. It says that during this extraordinary summit, the heads of state will take stock of the situation in the two member states and will engage in discussions on the subject. Taking part in the summit is the president of Ghana and current chairman of ECOWAS, Nana Akupuaju, as well as his counterparts, uh, Maki Saul of Senegal, Alassane Watari of Cote d'Ivoire, Mohamed uh, Bamzoum of Niger, and the ECOWAS mediator, Good Luck Jonathan, who is the former president of the Federal Republic of Nigeria. The other leaders of the member countries will join the proceedings in the afternoon. One of the main issues to be discussed during this extraordinary summit is the respect of deadlines set for the holding of presidential elections that should lead to civilian rule in both Bamako along with Conakry. In both countries, the military seized power. They dissolved the government and institutions and abolished the existing constitutions. In the aftermath of the coup in Guinea on September the 5th of this year, ECOWAS announced targeted sanctions against the perpetuators of the push and call for the elections within six months, calling for a very short transition period. ECOWAS also decided to freeze the financial assets of the country's new leaders and their family members and to impose travel bans on them. The sub-regional organization suspended Guinea from its membership and sent a mission to Conakry to meet with the head of the junta, Colonel Mamadi Dumbaya, as well as Alpha Conde, who was overthrown and arrested on September the 5th. With regard to Mali, ECOWAS imposed mainly economic sanctions and suspended the country from the organization following the August 18, 2020 coup d'etat. These sanctions were lifted following the commitment of the military led by Colonel Asimi Guaita to a transition of 18 months maximum starting in September of 2020. They had scheduled elections for February the 27th of 2022. At an extraordinary summit on September the 16th in Accra, the sub-regional organization demanded that the Malian military strictly respect the transition timetable towards the restoration of civilian rule. And with that, uh, we're going to uh, conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 
Uh, since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the entire world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, all you have to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, the programs can be shared uh, with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links in the emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. The links can also be copied and pasted onto blogs and websites, as well as being shared through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikwe. Now we'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. This special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, November 7th, uh, 2021. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan, in the United States. And that was uh, the voice of Marsha Hunt uh, with the tune entitled Black Flower. And as we mentioned earlier in the Pan-African Newswire segment, uh, the conflict in Ethiopia is raging. And, of course, uh, the TPLF rebels and their allies are backed uh, by uh, the United States and other Western countries uh, in an attempt to overthrow uh, the existing government of uh, President uh, Prime Minister Ahmed Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and his entire government and the Ethiopian parliament, which was just recently uh, elected and installed. Prime Minister Abiy was uh, recently sworn in as the head of state of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. Uh, Let's listen to this report on recent developments uh, inside the country. This was very much a government rally organized by the mayor's office in Addis Ababa. But thousands of people turned up at Mescal Square, carrying placards that expressed their anger at Tigray's TPLF leadership and its forces that many here refer to as Junta, and support of Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's government and its federal army. For a long time, TPLF has brought division on the people, so we have to begin to forget about them, forget about the past, and be united behind them and be united behind a defence force. This government has a lot of moral support. They need to take strong action against the junta that steals. Those who addressed the crowd had this to say. A few international media witnessed the junta using children for war. They witnessed this but did not report it, and that shows their interest. It shows who they are. Above all, the intent is to support the junta as they see Ethiopia bleed. Federal troops have withdrawn from Tigray, but the soldiers, Eritrean troops, and special forces from neighboring Amhara region have been accused by rights groups of committing crimes against civilians, including killings and rape. Those who came to this rally say they fully support the government in the ongoing Tigray conflict, but the situation there is dire. Fighting is still going on in some parts, drawing in security forces from other regions that were not previously involved in the fighting and the UN and other aid agencies saying that they're struggling to get to the most vulnerable people in that region. There has been recent fighting between federal troops and regional forces from Oromia against Tigrayan fighters in areas bordering Tigray and Afar region. A World Food Program aid convoy was attacked on Sunday on the only remaining ground humanitarian corridor into Tigray. This is devastating to millions of people who desperately need help. Shortages of fuel and cash, as well as communications blackouts, are significantly hindering the resumption of the humanitarian response and preventing its scale-up. NGOs and UN agencies are running out of cash and are unable to pay staff or suppliers. Unless fuel, cash, supplies, and aid workers are able to enter Tigray in the coming days, some humanitarian programs will not be able to function. These are dangerous times in Ethiopia, and all fighting sides are trying to control the narrative. 
Media access into Tigray is limited because of multiple national government and regional special forces checkpoints along the road and an airspace on the open for humanitarian flights. Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera, Addis Ababa. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, given an update on uh, recent developments uh, in uh, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia. And uh, this is another report we have coming up, an interview uh, with an uh, Ethiopian journalist that is based uh, in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, this was done uh, by the South African Broadcasting Corporation, the SABC, earlier today. Uh, let's listen in. Uh, one of the rebel groups in Ethiopia claims to have forces about 25 kilometers from the center of capital Addis Ababa and says that government troops are defecting to the rebels. Meanwhile, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, uh, marking one year of war in Tigray, has pledged to bury his government's enemies with our blood. Ethiopian journalist Abdulalem Sisai Gasese is on the is in the capital Addis Ababa and joins us now for an update. Thanks very much indeed for joining us and welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me, Peter. All right. So we've been talking about this conflict, and by and large, it had been restricted to the northern part of the country in Tigray. Uh, and uh, the immediate area surrounding. But it seems to have now tracked south and has gotten close to the capital. Just how close are the forces of the TPLF uh, and the Oromo forces uh, to the capital? Well, uh, it depends on the news media from which you, you get uh, your information. Uh, if you read uh, the news of the CNN or BBC or uh, any of the American affiliate uh, media, you may think that Addis Ababa is already under trouble and uh, uh, the rebels are already uh, in the encircling uh, Addis Ababa. But uh, in the reality, uh, life in Addis Ababa has been normal and it is normal. And uh, the rebels are the ones now who are encircled in a different direction. So uh, it comes from the—I think the news has become more uh, uh, spread by the CNN, which is the American uh, uh, media uh, and uh, the foreign policy uh, tool of the American government. So the American embassy is the ones who issued the statement claiming that uh, the— the claiming it's uh, telling its citizens in Ethiopia to leave the country. So it's part of the propaganda machine, which is the continued interest of the United States in the region and in Ethiopian politics in, in recent uh, months. Right. As you may aware, be aware that the U.S. has been so active in the uh, uh, mendling of uh, in Ethiopian politics, and it has taken the issue of Tigray several times to the U.N. Security Council. and. Uh, uh, that's the continuation of uh, the system. So uh, U.S. is trying to, uh, in the name of mediating, uh, the, uh, is trying to uh, bring to the table the uh, Abiy administration and the TPLF, uh, which is no match for the government of Ethiopia, which is already elected by the uh, by uh, uh, I mean, uh, free and democratic election. So uh, uh, it's uh, part of the propaganda of the 
Western media and the U.S. allies, uh, in my opinion, and uh, they are not nearby. So they are very far. To reach Addis Ababa, they have to come about 400 kilometers from where they are now. All right. So, so it's just total lies. <laughs> all right. So just to be uh, to, to to get the story correct, according to you, you're saying that the TPLF are still inside Tigray. No, I'm saying that they have crossed the uh, Tigray region uh, over yeah. the past few months. They have been uh, in the region of Amhara region, which is in the Wolo area, and they have recently captured uh, Dese and Kombolcha, the big cities in Wolo area in Amhara region. But still, they are in part of that Wolo area that they are fighting. Uh, over the past few days, today and yesterday, now, some of the areas that they used control in Amara region has been now under the, has been falling under the uh, Jordan Federal uh, Army. I mean, after the Abi administration has called on the people to uh, come together and after the state of emergency, the, of the defensive position of Ethiopian government, which allows them to move into the south, has now turned into an offensive and the government has started an offensive uh, attack and some of the areas which used to be, like Kobo, for instance, uh, which is around uh, in Wollo as well, uh, and uh, uh, Kamise area, uh, uh, and areas like uh, uh, Haig, has now been uh, liberated by the federal army. So it is now the TPLF, which is now being encircled within the Amhara, and they cannot return back to the Tigray because they are, uh, we heard that they have cut the uh, Ethiopian force and the farmers have cut the road uh, and encircled the TPLF now. Uh, that's why today you see in the streets of Berlin and uh, uh, United States, the supporters of the TPLF are now uh, laying on the ground and crying. But uh, three days ago, they were having party in, in those areas, claiming that they are the victory and they are getting closer to Addis Ababa. So the reality is this, uh, uh, that this is what's happening on the ground now. All right. So what you're saying is that uh, the uh, national forces of Ethiopia are containing the, uh, the uh, TPLF forces as well as the Oromo soldiers. Is that correct? Yes. Now, uh, to be clear for the rest of uh, our audience, uh, the TPLF is the one who is uh, recruiting this uh, Oromo Liberation Front, a very small number, uh, in a few thousands of soldiers, with a few thousands of soldiers. And all the uh, six other uh, rebel groups, which uh, today signed in the Washington. Now, uh, you see, when the U.S. Special Envoy to the Horn of Africa came today, <laughs> and yesterday he was here in, uh, in Ethiopia. So while he was here, today, the, these six, seven uh, opposition, including the TPLF, have signed uh, an agreement to work together and to topple the Abiy Ahmed administration. So you cannot compare the, uh, uh, the power of uh, the federal government with the power of the TPLF or these uh, six altogether, which, in my opinion, do not, cannot have more than a few thousands of soldiers, to be honest. So these are more of uh, uh, puppets of the TPLF, 
which the TPLF wants them to bring in the front and claim that this is a Somali party, this is a, a Benishangul clan party, and this is a, a Gao party, and those kind of uh, drama which they used to play. But the reality is that uh, Ethiopian federal government, which is now getting more support than ever, because after the election especially, which has got uh, majority vote of uh, uh, the majority of the people, cannot be a match for the TPLF, which claims to represent only about 6 million people of the whole Ethiopia, 110 million people population. So you cannot uh, compare them uh, either All in right. military, in capacity, in whatever you can call it. The, it's not easy, easy thing to okay. just walk and come to the capital, passing all these hassles and uh, right. uh, if, if it's not something. If, but th that is the wish of the U.S., in my opinion. All right. If what you say is true, why would the prime minister call on all citizens to fight against what he's described as rebels? He says that this is to protect the sovereignty and the very existence of Ethiopia. Why would he declare a six-month state of emergency if he was on top of the situation and was as safe as you say? Yeah, the reason he called on the people is that uh, Ethiopia government is not fighting with the TPLF. Ethiopian government is currently fighting with those who send the TPLF, literally with uh, those who have interest in Ethiopian politics and in the Horn and in the overall region of the Horn Africa, which includes primarily the United States, Egypt, the Sudanese, which brought the TPLF in 1991, giving them material, uh, logistics, and uh, training areas like Sudan and offices like in Khartoum, who uh, in Cairo, who gave them in Cairo, Khartoum and Cairo, and brought the TPLF in 1991. So these countries once divided Ethiopia. That's why TPLF introduced in 1991, after coming to power, a new constitution and a new regional uh, boundaries within Ethiopia, uh, and introducing ethnic politics. So based on that ethnic politics, TPLF claimed that it represents 6 million people or 5 million by then, population of Tigray, which is uh, found in the north. And it took some of the lands from the Amara region, the neighboring, in order to find a border with the Sudan. It took those area and included in the Tigray region. So that's one issue why they are fighting, where they, they are now uh, at odds with the Amhara region, and which took back their uh, area and claimed that the former uh, map of Ethiopia says Tigray is, has no border with the Sudan. So this is how they orchestrated. So the division gives the American government to stay its presence within the Horn of Africa the, uh, and serve oh. the interests of Egypt okay. as well. Because as you remember, right. U.S. Uh, we, we're running uh, out has, of time. Uh, we're, we're running out of time, so I just have to quickly wrap this up. But. So the U.S., you say, has an agenda in Ethiopia, but the European Union is also threatening sanctions over the Tigray situation. And we have millions of uh, Tigrayans now who have been dis displaced, and a humanitarian situation is developing on the ground. Amnesty International is reporting that uh, Addis Ababa is seeing Tigrayans being arrested and rounded up 
just for being Tigrayan in Ethiopia. They've got nothing to do with the conflict. Why is the Prime Minister doing that? Uh, I think, the, as I said, the reports who produce these reports are all allies of the United States. The United States has already decided that Ethiopia and the Horn Africa should be shaken and new friends should come up because uh, the project of the Great uh, Renaissance Dam of Ethiopia, which is the biggest in Africa, will not be executed so that the Egypt interest will be, which is the partner of the United States in the region, will be served. And the Chinese advance and the Chinese economic uh, uh, growth by investments in these countries, in Ethiopia, in Somalia, in Eritrea, and in the neighboring, will also be slowed down so that uh, the politics of the Horn as well. Uh, as you know, the Babylon Mandeb area is also being flooded by the superpowers. So it's like a uh, geopolitical war, which is being used uh, as a starting point using the as an excuse humanitarian situation. Other than that, the U.S. has never been uh, sympathizing for humanitarian uh, issues or for any civilians, be it in Yemen, be it in Libya or Iraq or Afghanistan. So it's not about humanity. This is about advancing their own interests and within divided Ethiopia and, if possible, finding a small nation, puppet nation, which can serve the United States and European Union. So they fear that Ethiopia, if uh, becomes independent and started using its resource, it will be a bad example for other African nations who may say also, we don't want your aid, we don't want your support, no, don't interfere in our politics and in our economy. So that's the fear. Why they create uh, Al-Shabaab? That's how they create uh, all those crises from Mozambique up to Mali, the whole uh, region of Africa. Right. So okay. it's, uh, in a way, fighting advance of China at the same time, conquering neo-colonizing Africa. That's part of the game, all right. in my opinion. Are Tigrayans being arrested in Addis Ababa? Tigrayans are friends, even journalists who are working. As long as you have nothing to do with the TPLF, which is leveled by the parliament as a terrorist group, you are still free. There is no reason you, you can be arrested. So you can, uh, uh, next time, I give you a contact of journalists Are Tigrayans being arrested in Addis Ababa? No, no Tigrayans are being arrested if they are uh, not associated with the TPLF, and if uh, they are not conspiring with the TPLF uh, to create chaos in the capital or in any other areas like they did in Desi area, for instance, Desi is occupied by the Tigrayan people who used to live within uh, Desi city with the other community, with the Amhara. So they were the ones who helped the TPLF to conquer that city. So for that reason, there are uh, measures now being searched in different places, and they are looking into the idea of the people and uh, following them. If they found that there is a connection and they have been uh, hidden operation with the TPLF connection, uh, they will be arrested for that. Oh. Other than that, if they are uh, innocent, they are not being arrested. And as I told you, there are Tigrayan journalists with whom I can link you next time working for Xinhua, for instance, or Chinese news agency. I have a friend. And there are also other journalists who are working uh, from Tigrayan ethnic groups. So there is nothing to 
to link with ethnicity. Is, is there the problem is TPLF represents only Tigrayans. So those who are sympathizing for them are Tigrayans other than that. You can't arrest Amara or somebody else which is not a member of the TPLF. You see, the problem is the parties organize themselves with ethnicity and all the members are uh, Tigrayans. Mm. So that's the problem also at the same time. We, we, that puts them in trouble. We're getting a sense that a lot of hate speech is coming through uh, in Ethiopia, um, anti-Addis, anti-Tigray, um, which is escalating and perhaps fanning the flames. Is this not further dividing Ethiopia? Even the language that you're using this evening suggests that this group, the Tigrayans, are the ones that are incalcitrant and are basically the problem uh, in terms of uh, the, this conflict with uh, uh, Addis Ababa? Uh, no, as I said, if you are innocent, you shouldn't be afraid of anything. You see, Tigrayans are also Ethiopians. But the problem is, TPLF has, for the past 27 years, before Abi came, I mean, so they were they were, uh, the TPLF said that you are the first class citizen. Everybody is second class. So that's why if you take uh, like 60 or 70 percent of the businesses in Ethiopia, including in Addis Ababa, are owned by the TPLF associates, mainly those who are from Tigray. So still their business is there, but they lost election and they ran to the Tigray region and they said, we will come back with armed struggle and overthrow and bring back their, their operation, uh, oppressing the other, uh, all the other uh, 100 plus million people. And we want to continue the old way of uh, 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 divide and rule and everything. So they don't want, TPLF does not want equality. There is no other reason why they are fighting, to be honest. So if you found some, if you find somebody supporting from Tigray, and uh, if the government finds anybody conspiring to topple the, the government like the U.S. is now trying to do, then it will be arrested, definitely. But if it's safe, including with the stolen money and with all this, their businesses, they are still operating. Many of the businesses are still open and operating. Many factories, as I said, is owned by the Tigrayans. They are working. Many businesses are still open. The majority, as I said, if you, the buildings that you see in Addis Ababa, yeah. I can tell you 70% is owned by them. Still, they are operating and living. All right. So, so there is no problem right. with, uh, with such an ethnic uh, background. All right. So why is this conflict taking so long? How will it end? Will it be through the barrel of a gun? Will it be through negotiations? And when? I think, in my opinion, negotiation is the best solution. But uh, the interference of the United States, especially, I'm saying this uh, with the reason and with facts, the interference of the United States in the internal politics of Ethiopia, including the Nile Dam and uh, cover of uh, humanitarian situation of Tigray, as if U.S. is more, uh, uh, more caring for Tigrayans who are who have married with other tribes is the fact that complicated the issue. So 
If there is no foreign interference, and if the Ethiopian people who used to live together, whether it is from Tigray or Afar or Somali, have been together, the elders can settle this issue if the foreign interference, especially the United States. But as, as I said, the U.S. The US and the, its allies, the Western countries, do not want us to see. So they don't want strong Ethiopia, united Ethiopia. So the agenda which they started during the Cold War and uh, the, the, they are replicating that same model of divided Ethiopia with a divisive constitution, which is introduced by the TPLF with the help of the Western countries, including the CIA. So they want that system to continue. That's why today they facilitated the signing ceremony of the opposition parties of the seventh opposition in Washington, D.C., this evening, including the TPLF. So it is the interference of the foreign interference that is making it long to uh, otherwise uh, tpf has already lost the battle they were in the mountains uh, within three weeks uh, if you remember uh, last november at the end of last november they were all gone and oh. the interim administration of tigray which is uh, incorporated by the people from tigray ethnic groups have been working to normalize the situation in tigray region but the U.S. started to cry out, and okay. the U.N., which is also uh, serving as a puppet to the U.N., has also begun crying. All so right. they they left the country, and they regrouped. That's why uh, things have been complicated and took long, in my opinion. My dear brother, we thank you very much indeed for your opinion and your view. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. You're welcome. All Thank right. you for having me. That's Ethiopian journalist uh, Andu Alem Sisai uh, Gazette speaking to us from Addis Ababa. And he's denying everything. He says that these rebel forces of the Tigrayan Liberation uh, People's Front says that they're not, they're far away. In fact, they've been encircled by the Ethiopian troops and that all of the news that uh, you're receiving is Western propaganda and that uh, uh, the battle is already won, the Tigrayan forces have already been defeated and that it's just American meddling and European meddling that's uh, causing problems to try and stop uh, uh, international influence from countries like China uh, coming into the region. So, what we know for sure is that there are millions of people in Tigray who are hungry, who are starving, who are in desperate need of aid. We know for sure that the conflict is a year old and there are very different views on who's to blame and what's actually happening. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, an interview uh, with uh, Ethiopian journalists on the current uh, situation uh, in uh, Ethiopia. And it was good that the uh, SABC did that interview with an Ethiopian journalist on the ground in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, uh, because uh, the overwhelming majority of news that uh, people in the West receive, and indeed probably internationally, uh, is totally against uh, the Federal Democratic Republic government of Ethiopia. And uh, they, of course, are supporting the TPF, TPLF, and other rebels. Um, these people are obviously well-funded. Uh, they have uh, the U.S. government uh, behind them. Elements within the United Nations are also supporting them. And uh, very little information uh, is being uh, put out uh, by these Western news agencies, including uh, some um, 
other agencies uh, in the Middle East, such as uh, Al Jazeera, uh, does not uh, take into consideration the perspective of the Prosperity Party, the ruling party in Ethiopia, and uh, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, uh, as well as those uh, within Ethiopia who do not support the TPLF. So we're going to continue to follow uh, this situation. If you read the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com, you can, of course, get information about uh, developments inside of uh, Ethiopia. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast That was the legendary Etta James uh, With the tune entitled I Prefer You 
And we do prefer you uh, here at the Pan-African Journal. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Today is Sunday, November 7th, 2021. And uh, right now we want to move into a briefing from uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Director General, Dr. John Minkangason, to talk about uh, the status of the COVID-19 pandemic, the rollout of uh, anti-COVID vaccines, as well as other uh, public health issues taking place on the continent. The African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is an affiliate uh, of the African Union, the 55-member continental organization on the continent. Let's listen uh, to uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention briefing uh, from uh, just three days ago. And uh, specifically from the offices of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with another edition of our Thursday morning briefings on the COVID-19 situation on the African continent. As usual, we'll start with a briefing from the director of the Africa CDC, Dr. John Kenasong, and then we'll move on to the question and answer section. And when we get to that, uh, you can send in your questions to the WhatsApp number plus 251-94-550-2310. Let me give you that number again, plus 251-94-550-2310. Alternatively, you can ask your question live or utilize the question and answer section. My name is Wayne Musabayana. I'm Head of Communication at the African Union Commission. And it is my pleasure to hand you over now to the Director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Kenasong. You have the floor. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wayne. And uh, good to see everybody on the platform as we do every Thursday. So as usual, I'll do uh, three things to give you uh, an update on the epidemiological situation, and then uh, discuss uh, issues related to testing and what Africa CDC is currently doing to support member states, and then conclude with the situation with vaccines. So as, as of today, November 4th, a total of uh, 8.5 million cases of COVID-19 have been reported across all 55 member states. Of that number, 218,000 deaths have been officially reported, and that represents a case fatality ratio of a uh, rate of 2.6%. That number of deaths, that is the 218,000, represents 4.4% uh, of the overall deaths reported globally. And as you are aware, uh, we have just crossed the 5 million mark of the number of deaths worldwide. Um, which is uh, extremely, extremely unfortunate. If you look at the, 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 the pandemic, again, uh, which countries have gone through the third wave and fourth, as we speak, 46 member states have uh, actually experienced the, the third, wave, uh, third wave, and that is um, very, uh, 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 that represents 74%. And one additional country, Niger, uh, just joined that group of countries that have gone through the third wave. Seven countries have, are now experiencing the fourth wave. That includes Algeria, Benin, Egypt, Kenya, Mauritius, and, and Somalia. Somalia and Tunisia, I beg your pardon. 
So if we look at the, the trends over the, uh, I will skip the variance this week because there's absolutely no movement in that direction. We still have 45 countries reporting the alpha, 41 countries reporting the beta, and 42 countries reporting the delta uh, variant. So not much have actually uh, occurred there. But if you look at the trends over the last um, one week, that is between the epidemiological period uh, 43, which is the period between 25th and 31st of October, and compare that uh, with the period between 18 and 24th of October, we observe the following trends. Uh, first, the number of new cases uh, as we speak today uh, across the continent of, as of last week were 32,000 new cases, and that represents a slight increase of 1%. Uh, the highest proportion of, of new cases were from Northern Africa with 44%, and then East Africa uh, with uh, 17%, Southern Africa 16%, Central Africa 14% and West Africa 9%. If we now look at the new deaths, a total of 1,277 new deaths were reported across the continent uh, compared to 1,300 from the previous week. And so this represents a 35% uh, decrease in number of new deaths across all 55 member states. We'll now look at a four-week um, interval that is uh, between the, the period of um, the, the period of um, be very specific here the period between the fourth and the thirty-first, okay, of October, and we observe a total of sixteen percent average decrease, sixteen percent average decrease, with the regional trends as follows: two percent. Average decrease in Central Africa, 29%, sorry, average increase, increase in Central Africa, 29% decrease in Southern Africa, 20% decrease in East Africa, 8% decrease in Northern Africa, and 6% decrease in Western uh, Africa. So in terms of that, uh, we have, uh, rec we recorded over the last four weeks a total average decrease of 16%, 16%. And the trends uh, among some major countries include 27% average increase in Nigeria, 10% average increase in Egypt, uh, a 100% decrease in DRC, 25% decrease in Ethiopia, 21% decrease in South Africa, and 9% average decrease in Kenya. In terms of testing as a continent, we have conducted a cumulative number of uh, uh, about 78 million tests, COVID tests since the pandemic started. Two million cases uh, tests were conducted um, in the last uh, uh, last week alone, and that is uh, very very encouraging. And we would like to see uh, understand how that surge in number of, uh, of testing occurred. And we continue to uh, we continue to see a high uh, positivity rate, which is around 10.8 percent. In terms of capacity, uh, Africa CDC continues to conduct our trainings on and uh, genomic sequencing. As we speak, there's a group in Dakar, Senegal, at the Institute Pasteur, uh, where we are training a large number of, of experts on genomic analysis from many countries. 
and I'm actually in Senegal. I'll be visiting them immediately after this um, uh, press conference to see how that training is, is going on. And other trainings have been scheduled to take place in, in South Africa or are actually taking place in, in South Africa as we speak. Uh, the Africa CDC successfully conducted um, a one Health conference uh, last, uh, the last two days, very, very successful, attended by thousands of, of people. So we are very uh, pleased with that. And amidst this pandemic, uh, we continue to carry out very important activities that are unifying the continent. In terms of vaccine access, there are a total of uh, 278.7 million doses of vaccines have been delivered on the continent. Of that number, 196.7 million doses have been used. And again, that represents about 71% uh, of total vaccines that have arrived and used. The coverage still remains low. Uh, uh, coverage in terms of people that have received two doses of vaccines uh, is around 5.8% uh, uh, of the total population fully immunized. Some countries are making a good, very good progress. Uh, Morocco is very, very close to 60%, to be very specific, 59.18% of the popula eligible population has been fully vaccinated. Egypt has fully vaccinated about 8.38% uh, uh, of its population. South Africa is making a, a very um, aggressive move with about 20% 20, 20 of the population vaccinated. Uh, Algeria, about 10.6% vaccinated, and Tunisia, also very encouraging to see the 29% uh, vaccinated of the population, uh, very specifically 29.88% of the population vaccinated. In terms of uh, delivery, the average deliveries continue. In the past week, average delivered 1.178 million doses of JIJ vaccines to three countries that included South Tome and Principe, where they received 79,000 uh, doses of vaccine. Nigeria received uh, 624,000 doses of vaccine, and Togo 475,000 doses of vaccine. I really want to pause here to uh, continue to applaud the, the, the efforts of uh, those uh, managing the logistics of this delivery for uh, the advert. Because uh, for Nigeria, for example, there's 624,000 doses of vaccine represents the equivalent of about 1.2 million doses of uh, a double-dose vaccine. So I think that is uh, very, very encouraging news. And I think, uh, as uh, Mr. Masiwa has said before, uh, we really are optimistic that our numbers will continue to increase in the month of, uh, of uh, uh, November, this month of November. Really, really optimistic that uh, we can begin to uh, hopefully aim for the distribution of about 35 million doses by the end of, of um, November. So let me end there for um, for now and return it to you, uh, Wayne, to uh, guide us through the question and answer series. All right. Well, thank you very much. That was Dr. John Kenatong, who is the director of the Africa CDC. Colleagues, I want to remind you of the means uh, through which you can uh, send in your questions. So the first one would be the WhatsApp number plus 251-945502310. Alternatively, you can come through to us live or utilize the question and answer section. 
Right now, I don't see any questions that are coming through to us. So colleagues, please, if you have any questions, feel free to use any one of those means of communication. Dr. John, I wonder if there's um, any extra advice that you might want uh, to give to, uh, to colleagues uh, while we wait for questions. Uh, but as I'm speaking to you, we've just uh, received a question and this one is coming from, let me see. Okay. No, there, is, there isn't really a question. Um, it's just a notice that our, our briefing today will last uh, 45 minutes. So if there are any with questions, uh, please make sure that you come through now. So let me say good morning to Duduzile Ramela, who wants to come through live. And Duduzile is with the Newsroom Africa, based in South Africa. Good morning, Dudu. Sorry, I just had to unmute. I hope you can hear me. Good morning, Ms. I can, I can hear you very well. Please go ahead. Thank you, Max. Uh, good morning, Doctor, and thank you so much for uh, the update. I do note a decrease in the number of infections uh, and deaths in Southern Africa. South Africa has just gone through um, local government elections, and over the past eight weeks, it was quite difficult for people to use non-pharmaceutical methods to avoid infection in terms of attending rallies and attending campaigning. Um, I just wanted to know whether the CDC is concerned that post the elections, maybe the amount of infections will rise and what your observation has been of the situation during electioneering here at home. I do know that some people are worried that we'll go into a harsher lockdown where the country is still the harshest lockdown you know, on the continent. Thank you. Oh, th thank you. L let me just respond to that very broadly, based on our experience in uh, uh, dealing, this, uh, dealing with this pandemic over the last uh, close to two years, amazing now, that each time uh, we, we offer the virus a chance to spread, it will spread. I mean, this, uh, we're dealing with the virus, especially the variant, the Delta variant that is uh, uh, all over the place, uh, with the virus that transmits very quickly. And if you uh, uh, render the opportunity for the virus to spread, it will spread. Uh, at the same time, uh, we have said on this platform that we have to balance between uh, livelihood, saving lives, and saving livelihoods. So it's, uh, we are not uh, uh, in. We are in a mode where we are looking for each country. We need to find that balance between where do they situate, situate the measures that will be impunity for the population versus measures that will save lives. I think that is what we have to uh, be playing with now. We have said that previously, that uh, the days where it's a very severe lockdown, uh, where the solution is over, we have to begin to balance between uh, public health and social measures. How do we gather, gather information that will enable us to uh, make informed decisions early on before we go into lockdown? Say, for example, what do I mean by this? If I were in South Africa now, what I would do is that you increase testing. Right? You just say, okay, elections were conducted, people were probably not respecting um, uh, the, the basic uh, public health uh, measures, but let's increase the amount of testing. If you do that uh, using the rapid antigen test, if you do that, you find the hotspot very early and you do something with them, rather than wait until those hotspots become uh, wildfires and then we start going into big lockdown. So that is the, the strategy that we will be um, advising uh, the, the continent in the coming 
uh, weeks, we'll be launching a vast campaign of uh, extensive testing of uh, using the rapid antigen test uh, across the continent. Our target will be that in the next um, close to uh, uh, six months, we should be able to test about 200,000 people using the rapid antigen test. The aim of that is to say that we are now at the, the trough of the peaks. If you look at what we usually go through the peaks, we go through the peaks, then it comes down. We are at the trough, and this is a period to do something, which is the do something means that we expand testing, expand vaccination as much as possible so that we don't need to go to the, 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 the back to the peak. And then when we go to the peak, then we create extensive health damage and extensive economic damage. All right, so thank you very much, John. We have a question that's coming from Aaron Ross, and he is with Reuters. So Aaron says he's following up on an issue that um, was put forward last week, and uh, that is concerning the price at which the African Union purchased the Moderna doses. So that's coming from Reuters. Yeah, the the price issue, I think, uh, can, if you don't mind, send me a reminder email, please. And that way we can just send you that uh, answer immediately by, by close of business today so that it's as accurate. I did promise last week that we're going to reach out to uh, Mr. Matiwa's uh, group, who is our lead um, negotiator in that, and want to be sure that we give you the, the accurate uh, information, which we have not obtained, not because we don't want to, but I've been on the road, I'm in Dakar now, so... It's been a little bit difficult <coughs> to coordinate. But send it to me, please. My email, <coughs> excuse me, you have my email address, or you send it to our communication people. They will send that to me, and we promise to give you the answer by close of business. All right. Uh, thank you very much. So, Aaron, please do send that uh, email through. And uh, if you don't have the email address, you can use that WhatsApp number that uh, we give you from time to time on this program. So we move on now to a question that says um, the CDC, and that is the American CDC, recently announced eligibility for boosters for those who take Pfizer and Moderna at uh, six months and for Johnson and Johnson at two months. With Africa still in the race to acquire vaccines to reach the initial 40%, um, and then 70% doses, does this in any way affect the level of immunity that we are looking to reach on the continent by creating a need for further vaccines? And I think that's coming from Wegata Minas, and uh, Megata is a freelancer. Yeah, I think that, let, let's just go back to the US uh, CDC uh, guidelines that you mentioned. Uh, they were very clear that for those other vaccines, that is the messenger RNA vaccine, that um, boosters were recommended for a certain category of people that were immunosuppressed and I think the elderly, but not for the general uh, population. I think that is, uh, that, that is what that guideline uh, stated. Then with respect to Johnson & Johnson, they recommended um, a second dose uh, two months later, which essentially is saying that uh, the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine uh, uh, could have been, should have been a double dose, not a single dose. But here is what we know about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The duration of immune response goes way even up to eight months for that uh, vaccine and before it begins to win. 
And if you look at, so two things I'd like to extend to here. One is the duration of the immunity, which is the antibody levels, neutralizing antibodies, when do they decay? And then after the decay, what does that mean in terms of people who are exposed to infected if they are sick? So just bear with me for one second. So if you take a look at the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, single dose, if you immunize people with that vaccine, the, 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 the immunity goes right up to about eight months before. Uh, it, it, of course, all vaccines, they win, as you expect. I mean, immune system will, um, just dies the way immune system functions. But up to about eight months or past six months, you still have high level of neutralizing antibodies for the single dose Johnson & Johnson. And high level means that it gives you way over 70% of that, uh, that dose response. Yeah. So the, the, the studies have shown that if you do an additional boosting at two months, it actually goes up to more than 90% then. But the key question from a clinical standpoint is that what does that mean? If it goes down to a slightly after six months or seven months, does that mean that if someone is immunized with the Johnson & Johnson and exposed, do you get sick or hospitalized? The answer is no, we don't see any difference based on the studies that have been published. So we at Africa CDC are putting together a guideline that will say that the priority is to immunize people first so that everybody gets their double shot as much as possible. That Johnson & Johnson, you get your Johnson & Johnson single dose and then we'll gather more data, and then next year we inform, uh, we use the data to, to make a decision. So it's like equity. We want as many people as possible to be protected uh, than just a few people that have been vaccinated, then you keep boosting them up there. So that is not equity. So I think our position would be informed with the signs that we are seeing, will be that, yes, you can boost who those who are immunosuppressed, like the, the elderly, the HIV infected uh, categories, but for the general population, uh, younger people, uh, people who have no comorbidities, uh, we don't have any need for now to be concerned with that, given where we are. We are 5.5% or 5. whatever, 8% of the po total population immunized. So if we start doing boosters of those that 5%, we may never ever get to uh, 70 or seven, uh, 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 60 to 70%. All right, uh, thank you. The next question is coming. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was... Uh, Excerpts uh, from a briefing uh, delivered by the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, just two, just uh, three days ago uh, in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And uh, we've been bringing you uh, these uh, briefings uh, now for a year and a half, uh, given an African perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic and, of course, uh, highlighting uh, the contradictions in regard to uh, the Western countries uh, which have not uh, done an adequate job in regard to uh, transferring access to uh, COVID-19 vaccines uh, to Africa and other uh, developing areas of the world. And uh, all you have to do is log on to the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. You can stay abreast of uh, not only uh, the issues involving the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the global effort to uh, immunize uh, 
billions of people against uh, COVID-19, but all other issues uh, impacting uh, Africa, the African world in general, and the international community as a whole. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment uh, of our program. Detroit's own Supremes. Love is here, now you're gone. And uh, our concluding segment of our program is uh, an updated uh, version of Africa Live uh, from CGTN. Uh, We'll be discussing some of the most pressing and burning issues uh, on the African continent and the international community in general. So let's listen in uh, to Africa Live. Hello and welcome to CGTN. This is The World Today. I'm Lindy Mtongana in Nairobi and these are your top stories. 
The death toll in the Sierra Leone tanker explosion rises to 108 as hospitals struggle to save the critically injured. Iraq's Prime Minister confirms he survived an assassination attempt after a drone attack on his residence. And pro-government protests in Addis Ababa as some Western countries ask their nationals to leave Ethiopia while they still can. In our top story, Iraq's Prime Minister has confirmed he survived an assassination attempt. Mustafa al-Kadimi confirmed the attack in a televised address, calling it an act of treason. A small drone packed with explosives targeted his residence in Baghdad early Sunday. The Prime Minister escaped unharmed, but several of his security guards were reportedly hurt. No group has yet claimed responsibility. This comes days after protests turned violent, with demonstrators angry over last month's elections. Our correspondent Fujinri has more from Baghdad. According to Iraqi media outlet, at about 3 o'clock in this morning, local time, a booby-trapped drone attacked the residence of Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa Kadami in Green Zone, Baghdad. But the attempt failed and Iraqi security forces announced that Kadami was in good health. And at the same time, Kadami published a tweet that he was fine, and Iraqi security forces will be able to protect the safety of Iraqi people. Uh, he will stand up for his rights and the law. And Kadami also called on everyone to keep calm and constrained. According to the information from Iraqi security forces, uh, Baghdad has entered emergency status and the whole green zone has been uh, shut down with additional guarding forces present. And there is also a video clip, uh, I think that was shot uh, on the phone by a local resident that showed a series of gunshots after the incident. But the green zone is quiet now without any unusual signs. And it was believed that the Iraqi security forces are carrying out investigation on whoever conducted this failed assassination attempt. Let's go to Sierra Leone now, where hospital authorities have started posting the names of people being brought in for treatment this after Friday's deadly tanker explosion. The number of casualties has risen to 108. Relatives have been waiting outside hospitals for updates on the victims. Officials say nearly 100 people are being treated for injuries. Most are in a critical condition. One intensive care unit says about 30 victims are not expected to survive. Many doctors and nurses were called in overnight to handle the influx of patients. The explosion took place after a fuel tanker collided with another truck as it was pulling into a gas station near the capital, Freetown. My name is Osman Timbo. I'm 18 years old. I lost my younger brother during the fire incident at Wellington. He left home and said he was going to buy bread for us to eat. When I heard about the explosion, I went to the scene and I saw my younger brother lying down and he was burned all over. I felt so bad. I loved him so much. And to the latest on Ethiopia now, countries including the United States, Denmark and Italy have asked their personnel in Ethiopia to evacuate the country as an armed conflict and civil unrest continue. The UN has called for an end to the fighting and for talks on a lasting ceasefire. An alliance of opposition factions led by rebels in Tigray is trying to oust Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, while on the other side, thousands of Ethiopians are voluntarily joining the army to fight the rebels. 
Ethiopians have expressed their wish for peace and stability. I don't think the war will spread to Addis Ababa because our government will take strong measures. I hope our country can restore the economy and stability, and life can return to normal. After the stage of emergency was announced, there hasn't been many changes to my business. I receive our customers as usual. I'm not very worried about the future, but I hope for peace in our country at an early date. There have been some changes after we entered the state of emergency. There are some walking checks. It's a bit inconvenient, but I don't think the war will come to Addis Ababa. Well, let's bring you more on this. CGTN's Girum Chala is live for us in Addis Ababa. Uh, Girum, pro-government protesters in the streets today. Tell us more about that. What are they calling for, essentially? Lindy, hands of Ethiopia. Western governments uh, respect Ethiopia's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Stop meddling into our internal politics. And many others were... Uh, what has been written on uh, thousands of placards these protesters came out with. They are demanding, obviously, uh, what they called Western interference into Ethiopia's internal affairs. On the other hand, these thousands of uh, pro-government protesters who came out uh, on the streets of Addis Ababa, especially on Muscle Square, the biggest square in the country, are saying that they are denouncing TPLF's advancement. They are denouncing uh, the fact that TPLF has, has had its chance of leading the country it had uh, many things uh, wrong, and uh, it, it needs to stay away from the central government, and it needs to uh, respect the country's uh, constitution at the same time. So um, almost all the people who came out are sounding uh, the same issues that I've been talking about. But then again, they are also saying that they will continue supporting the government no matter what until Ethiopia is uh, safe and away from uh, the danger that uh, the TPLF and others are posing according to the people there. Well, thank you so much. We will leave it there. That is Girum Chala live with us from Addis Ababa. Now, most COVID vaccine mandates in the United States include an exemption for religious reasons, but not all. Those exceptions don't exist for healthcare workers in Maine and New York who are challenging the rules. The Supreme Court has so far upheld the requirements, but that could change. Karina Huber has more. The majority of COVID-19 vaccine mandates in the United States have withstood legal challenges. But for those without a religious exemption, it's murkier territory. The trend there is really unmistakable. You're looking at religious freedom-based arguments. So these are really the only arguments that are seeing any sort of headway in courts right now. Historically, the U.S. Supreme Court did not require a religious exemption from a general rule like a vaccine mandate. But over the past year, the justices have indicated they support tightening protections for religious freedom. The Supreme Court has allowed a mandate for health care workers in the state of Maine to stay despite not including a religious exemption. But three justices dissented, indicating that mandates that don't include a religious exemption could be overturned in the future. In New York, plaintiffs are asking the Supreme Court to hear a similar case. I think we can hope that they will, and they can on existing precedent, decide that vaccine mandates do not require a religious exemption, uh, but we can't be sure. The mandate for healthcare workers in New York originally included a religious exemption, but was later removed. 
Legal expert Dorit Rice says she isn't surprised. In 2019, the state faced a measles outbreak centered mainly among ultra-Orthodox Jews, some of whom refused routine childhood vaccinations on religious grounds. So New York says, we've been there before. We've seen that religious exemption leads to more outbreaks. Uh, I think that's a reasonable point of view. Anti-vaccine groups have reportedly been providing pointers on what to say to get a religious exemption. Many are believed to be abusing the exemption to avoid getting vaccinated for other reasons. Rice believes in the debate over religious freedom during a pandemic, public health should take precedent. The fact that you're sincere about religion doesn't make the harm suddenly disappear. Uh, and states may say, sincere or not, we have good reason not to want religious exemption because they increase COVID outbreaks and which kill and harm people. Karina Huber. CGTN. The China International Import Expo is underway in Shanghai. CGTN's Yang Zhongxi checked out some cool surgical robots on display. If you think the medical pavilion of the Import Expo is all about medication and clunky equipment, think again. This is a robot from Da Vinci Surgical System that allows doctors to perform precise and minimally invasive inspections. Robot-assisted surgeries have become more commonplace throughout the world. And in this medical pavilion of the CIIE, there are other big names in the market as well. Medtronic is showcasing their Mazer X spinal surgery robot. They claim it can reduce bleeding by 50% during procedures compared to open surgeries. Artificial intelligence precisely guides the robot arms. Mazer X made its China debut at last year's CIIE, and thanks to the publicity, it successfully hit the market in China this August. We have nine strategic partners coming to sign deals on this robot at this year's expo. Across the pavilion, Siemens Healthy Mirrors is showcasing its Corindus robot, which helps doctors perform interventional surgeries. The guide valves in the vessels can be controlled even less than one millimeters. Yeah. This is not cannot be achieved by the human hand. With the uh, great, I think, uh, market impact from this showcase, uh, we successfully uh, have uh, performed a first case PCI in Hainan Buao on March 13th. With these robots set to enter more hospitals in China, a new question emerges. Do they require a steep learning curve for doctors? The answers from companies vary. This question was raised by the experts. I raise a quite uh, interesting uh, answer to them, yeah, because during the uh, clinical case in Boao, yeah, our doctor only trained two hours. Intuitive Surgical Fosun, the company that owns Da Vinci System, said it has launched an innovation center in Shanghai this year. The uh, innovation center provides a great environment for surgeons to learn, practice uh, Da Vinci surgery uh, technology. Medtronics is doing something similar. For the robots to perform as they should, we need to get doctors able to operate them well. We have announced today the launch of our training center for doctors to train their skills. These companies are confident that their robots offer huge advantages that can improve treatment. With the advancements of robotic technologies, this remains one of the most promising and exciting fields in the medical world. Yang Chongxi, CGTN, Shanghai. And that's it for the world today. I'll be back in just a moment with more news from the continent in Africa Live. Thanks for watching.
taken me completely out of my depth, but at the same time, it's exciting. It's new, it's different, it's a challenge. It's really exciting. <laughs> GTN, China Global Television Network. In Sierra Leone, intensive care doctors are struggling to save critically injured victims of the tanker explosion. Sudan mediators keeping hope alive as pro-democracy protesters dig in against military rule. And rescuers still digging through rubble in Nigeria a week after a building collapsed in Lagos, leaving 42 dead. Hello and a very warm welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Lindim Tongana in Nairobi. Also coming up this hour. Africa's biggest oil producer pledges to reach zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2060. But what will it take to overcome current challenges? And in sports, African athletes return to New York for the 50th edition of the marathon. We start the hour with the latest from Sierra Leone, where hospital authorities have posted the names of people being brought in for treatment after Friday's deadly tanker explosion. The number of casualties has risen to 108. Relatives have been waiting outside hospitals for updates on the victims. Officials say nearly 100 people are being treated for injuries. Most are in a critical condition. One intensive care unit says about 30 victims 
are not expected to survive. Many doctors and nurses were called in overnight to handle the influx of patients. The explosion took place after a fuel tanker collided with another truck as it was pulling into a gas station near the capital, Freetown. Well, for more on this, let's bring in Eric Kawa, a journalist based in Freetown, Sierra Leone. He joins us live now via Skype. Eric, uh, the latest figures from the authorities are putting the death toll at 108 with over 92 people injured. What more can you tell us? All right, thank you so much for having me. Uh, giving you updates on the incident that happened so far. Uh, the figures keep fluctuating, they keep rising uh, in, uh, out, and they keep, uh, you know, just being uh, over and over again. But as of the latest that I got yesterday, speaking to the Director General of the National Disaster Management Agency, the toll was at 99, and he said they keep increasing are uh, in and are uh, out, as you have said so far. So the situation yesterday was... Uh, so coming to normal a bit because we went to the scene and we saw rubble, we saw a lot of uh, things that were affected and also met with family members uh, and other eyewitnesses who shared their experiences with us. So the situation is devastating and several unions are still trying to grapple with the situation and to recover from those uh, wounds so far. Mm, a devastating situation indeed, Eric. Tell us how are hospitals coping with the high number of casualties and what are some of the most urgent needs uh, of the medical teams that are helping these victims? So the situation, as we have stated, that it is quite devastating. And then uh, there's been an appeal. You know, this morning I was listening to local uh, media, and then uh, doctors are calling for urgent needs. They're in need of many medications in order to be able to treat the people who actually got injured during the incident. So uh, many hospitals across the country have admitted uh, uh, casual uh, individuals who actually suffered from this incident. We have the main peripheral hospital, that is the Connor Hospital. They have uh, uh, a quite number of people there. Also at the emergency hospital, child trauma hospital, and other key health facilities like the 34 military hospital as well. So the right now is getting a lot more of these uh, medications, and that also happened as a result of the National Petroleum. Um, um, a company that donated some drugs yesterday to some uh, individuals at the hospital, so the doctors are now appealing for more aid. And parents and relatives are also at different hospitals to be sure that they identify their uh, loved ones. But it has been quite challenging because the extent to which some people got damaged, they were uh, beyond recognition, and it was quite difficult. And those who survived, uh, most of them, when we went to the scene yesterday, we got reports that they also lost their lives which is quite devastating. Indeed it is. And it must be all hands on deck in the hospitals in and around Freetown. Thank you so much, Eric Kauer, uh, joining us there from Sierra Leone. Now, in Sudan, pro-democracy protesters are calling for two days of civil disobedience against military rule. The calls are steered by the Sudanese Professionals Association. The association is a coalition of trade unions and was instrumental in the protests that led to the ouster of Omar al-Bashir in 2019. The latest call for protests come two weeks after a military takeover of the transitional government and the arrest of Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok and other civilian leaders. A statement published on social media by the SPA vows no negotiation, no partnership and no legitimacy. The SPA appeals for supporters to avoid confrontation with security forces during the protest planned for Sunday and Monday. 
Multiple mediation efforts to reconcile civilian and military leaders have been taking place with a delegation from the Arab League arriving this weekend. Now, the Consumer Protection Association of Sudan has initiated a lawsuit against telecommunication companies operating in the country. This follows the disruption of Internet services in the capital Khartoum occasioned by the military takeover on October 25th. Media owners say they've suffered heavy losses due to the cutting of Internet services. The Consumer Protection Association on its part says the provision of Internet services is a right guaranteed by the Sudanese constitution. Economists have also weighed in on the matter, saying the interruption has negatively affected the country's overall economy. The interruption has very large financial impact considering that most sites depend on revenues through the service provided by Google account or Google revenue, and this interruption will certainly affect the revenue. There are various expenses such as office rent and the salaries of editors and employees inside the center, and therefore their income would be affected due to this interruption. We have great confidence in the Sudanese judiciary and we are very confident in the laws and we are very confident in the constitutional document which stipulates that the use of the internet is a right and was signed by the partners. This matter has an economic cost as well as a social cost because there are families who depended on the internet for their livelihood and now these families are suffering from the hardships of living because the only source of income is now completely stopped. The Economic Community of West African States is scheduled to convene an extraordinary summit in Accra today to discuss the political situations in both Guinea and Mali. ECOWAS has suspended membership of both nations following military takeovers. The regional bloc is also calling for the release of former Ghanaian president Alpha Conde, who was arrested in September. They're also urging the military leadership in Guinea under Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya to hold elections and return the country to constitutional order. The meeting today will also discuss a political transition to civilian rule in Mali. Well, CGTN correspondent Nabil Ahmed Rafai is following the story for us. He joins us live now from Accra. Nabil, another ECOWAS meeting on the transition process, uh, processes rather in both Guinea and Mali. What should we expect? Indeed, Lindy, another meeting here. Uh, you know, uh, the last time we had a meeting here on the situation in Guinea and Mali was in September, and that's when the ECOWAS leaders gave some directives for the both countries to follow in returning the, their countries to civilian rule. Uh, with regard to Guinea, uh, the ECOWAS had given the country six months to prepare for, I uh, mean, to return the country to a civilian government. And with um, Mali, uh, the leaders had said they want their country to have the elections early uh, February next year. Uh, so this particular meeting is to update the leaders on um, the process so far from the time we had the meeting in September till now, what has happened in both countries. Uh, we know that the ECOWAS Commission uh, President uh, a week ago visited Guinea to also apprise himself on the situation there and he met with the junta who is now um, the president of the transition. Uh, we know that uh, he has also appointed a prime minister for the transition and also uh, appointed some ministers to uh, see to the transition uh, to civilian rule. 
but as to whether the country will still go ahead to hold elections within the next six months, that is something that is not clear, and the junta leader has not actually said when elections will be held. Now, with regard to Mali, uh, we know that the latest development has been the fact that uh, an ECOWAS envoy uh, was sacked uh, from the country uh, some couple of weeks ago. Uh, now, this meeting will look at that situation and the way forward. Uh, we know that they are supposed to hold elections uh, early February next year. As to whether that is still going to happen, we are not uh, certain yet. And the leaders will be updated on the situation uh, in uh, Mali as well today. Well, Nawal, of course, we've seen, as you've mentioned, ECOWAS engage in meetings and other forms of intervention uh, in these two countries, even suspending them, or rather suspending their membership. But tell us, how are these efforts of ECOWAS impacting the pace of transition in these two countries? Well, Lindy, um, some analysts have said the pace of the intervention of ECOWAS and the mediation in returning both Guinea and Mali to civilian rule has been quite slow. But then um, the ECOWAS leaders have also said they are just doing everything possible uh, to make sure that these countries return to civilian rule. We know with regard to Guinea, um, they've been going to the country to meet with the leaders and to see how best they'll be able to achieve their aim of returning the country to a civilian government. Um, we, uh, we know that uh, for now the ECOWAS leaders have pledged their support to Guinea uh, to help them in the whole transition process and that's something that they say is a good step. With regard to Mali, um, they will be taking a decision on the country as well uh, today because of the latest development of one of their envoys being sacked uh, from the country. And they will also ask whether sanctions will be um, applied to the country. It's unclear at the moment. But then they'll be making another commitment to, be, to help the country in their election process, if indeed they'll be able to hold the elections in February next year. But we know that uh, the junta leader in Mali has said um, they will be holding uh, a nation-building forum next month, that's November, uh, December, um, as to whether this would spearhead um, the holding of elections in February, that is also not clear. And these are the issues that will be discussed here uh, today, Lindy. Naval Ahmed Rufai, thank you so much for that update. Joining us there live from Accra, Ghana. Now, almost a week after a 21-story building collapsed in the Nigerian commercial city of Lagos, rescuers are still digging through rubble in search of survivors. Over 40 people have now been confirmed dead from the accident, including the owner of the property. Some are still searching for their missing relatives. CGTN's Deji Badamosi has this update on the story. Dr. Sohe has been hanging around the glass building site for days now, hoping to set eyes on her son, who had been working in the building when it came down. She traveled over 700 kilometers from her remote village in Nigeria's north-central Benue state to get here. The boy in the middle of this picture is her son, David. And since the building collapsed, nothing has been heard from him. She says she wants to see the body of her son and she wants to take it home. David's relative, Fidelis, who has accompanied the mother on the trip, says it's been heartbreaking for the family. My own problem is, for me, let me just see his corpse. To be confirmed that, yeah, this is where he is. Then whenever they release him to me, I can come over and pick him. But now that I'm from different state down here, I don't even know what to go back and tell my elderly people in the village. 
because I was the one that brought him out from the village to the city. So, there you start. Like Dorcas, a number of relatives are still looking for their loved ones. Rescue operations are still going on, but the hope of finding anyone alive beneath the rubble is now fading. Some bodies are ready for identification, so people can go to ID Asiaba to identify the bodies of their loved ones. For bodies that may be very difficult to identify, uh, we are going to be conducting a DNA test for them, for such bodies to be identified. And I would like to let you know that uh, the operation continues. As for O'Hare, she's still holding on to hope that her son David will be found alive. DG Bademasi, CGTN, Lagos. You are watching Africa Live. We'll be back after this short break. A commission that was set up to look into Belgium's colonial past in the Democratic Republic of Congo has released a report which calls on the European nation to pay reparations to its former colony for committing human rights violations. The commission was created by the Belgian Parliament last year after Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. Some Congolese citizens have hailed the call for reparations for injustices committed during the colonial period. CGTN's Chris Ochamringa has more from Kinshasa. Ten experts, including historians, political scientists and lawyers, were tasked with examining human rights abuses during Belgium's colonial rule, most notably in the Congo, and evaluating how that history still impacts people today. This included cases of forced labor, racism, and the kidnapping and deportation of thousands of mixed-race children. In a recently released report, the expert panel calls on Belgium to pay reparations to the DRC, a recommendation that has been welcomed by many Congolese. But a university professor in Kinshasa is not as upbeat, saying that the involvement of foreign entities has weakened the cause. The DRC as a country has not taken up the struggle, has not taken up that claim. It has been made by private institutions, individuals have been making the same claim, or, you know, some you know, association for uh, human rights. These are the kind of institutions that have been making that claim. And for it to have the power, similar to what Benin had, the DRC as a government, as a country, has to take up the struggle, has to take up the claim. And that's what the government of the DRC has failed to do. Belgium controlled the DRC from the early 19th century until it won independence in 1960. Millions of Congolese were killed during the reign of King Leopold II. In June last year, Belgium's reigning monarch, King Philippe, expressed his deepest regrets to the DRC for his country's colonial abuses. While the king's apology was welcomed by the DRC government, many Congolese demanded compensation for the atrocities committed against their ancestors. 
the Black Lives Movement in the U.S. last year stirred the Belgian government to look into its colonial past after statues of its former leaders were defaced by protesters. Earlier this year, Belgium promised to return artworks that were stolen from the DRC during the colonial period. Chris Sochamringa, CGTN, Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. Uganda's parliament has banned all unvaccinated people, including legislators, from accessing its premises. The same mandate has been introduced at universities and tertiary institutions across the country. The decision is, however, stirring debate in the country, as Leon Senyange reports. Open for the first time since June, this university in the capital Kampala is busy yet again. While the institution is advising on the recommended COVID-19 prevention measures, it is also weighing mandated vaccination as a path to get in. It's a good measure because we feel we need to rely on the vaccines to reopen everything. And no one, I think, no parent, no student wants the university closed because it has been closed many times and they have suffered. So to avoid that, let's take what we think will help us out. The institution has over 33,000 students. University officials say with the numbers, all studying could be a potential spark to the spread of COVID-19 infections. The university now requires students to show identification to access the premises, but the requirement to demonstrate vaccination status is already becoming a divisive issue on campus. It should be given time. It shouldn't be, be exactly now, but at least there should be a timeline when one cannot access a given premises, when he's not vaccinated. It is actually a fair decision for all of us. And I would encourage everyone to vaccinate and, you know, we come and proceed. I believe they're just giving us some time, excusing us a bit, but I believe we need to come next week. I assume it will be mandatory. Various government institutions, including the country's parliament, have implemented a no-access policy unless vaccinated. It is already a polarizing issue. You can't force people to take a vaccine that they do not, uh, that they don't feel comfortable with. The onus goes back to government to ensure that it does more and robust sensitization. Uganda launched its nationwide vaccination program last March. The campaign has, however, been hampered by unavailability of vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. So far, at least 3.2 million Ugandans, approximately 7% of the country's population, have been vaccinated. Over 400,000 have received a second job. Leon Senyange, CGTN, Kampala, Uganda. Algerians are increasingly seeking out herbal treatment as an alternative to mainstream medicine. This has left medical practitioners concerned as the informal industry remains largely unregulated. CGTN's Wanja Mungai brings us more details. A rising demand for natural herbs in Algeria has raised concerns among medical practitioners. The largely unregulated industry acts as an alternative to mainstream treatment and medicine. Traders involved in the growing field defend their profession, citing that Algerians are now gaining confidence in the herbs. 
People's demand for natural herbs for medicine is increasing and people are accepting it in order to avoid the use of chemical drugs and a desire to use what is natural. And the therapeutic prescription that we offer are based on experience and our ancestors used them and gave healing results. Authorities in Algeria report that there are little over 2,000 dealers specializing in herbal medicine. Health professionals are agitated over the increasing trade. The traditional stores selling medicinal herbs are competing with us in the medicinal market, perhaps due to the high cost of living or the accustomedness of some patients to herbal medicine. But we must be aware of some dangers in using herbs without scientific medical advice. Herbalists say the preparations they sell have been passed down through the generations and questions of affordability and access to mainstream medicine leave Algerians looking to natural remedies in the belief that their health is in safe hands. Wanjamungai, CGTN. Coming up in your business news up next. Africa's biggest oil producer pledges to reach zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2060, but can it overcome current challenges? Africa is the nexus of enterprise, and global business will tell you why it matters. From the mega investment projects to multi-billion dollar mergers and acquisitions. Africa today collects, just in terms of revenues from taxes alone, $545 billion a year. If you take 10% of that and you devote it to the energy sector, problem solved. All this on global business, weekdays at this time on CGTN. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has pledged the country will reach net zero emissions by 2060. He made the commitment at the ongoing UN Climate Summit, COP26, in Glasgow, Scotland. Nigeria is Africa's biggest oil producer and depends on revenue from oil to drive its economy. The country has huge oil reserves and is hoping to attract new investments to its oil and gas industry with a new petroleum industry law. But as Deji Badamosi reports, the government faces a daunting challenge to attain its net zero emissions target. Nigeria is among countries with low carbon footprints, but it's also one of the nations that have been hard hit by the effects of global warming. Desertification in the country's north is getting worse and forcing people to move. In the south, coastal communities are fast disappearing due to erosion caused by rising sea levels. Despite its low carbon footprints, Nigeria had pledged to reduce its greenhouse gas emission by 20% by 2030. The president has now gone a step further to announce a target of a net zero emission by 2060. And environmentalists here have welcomed the move. But say more still needs to be done. Uh, my challenge with it is that, why 2060? Why um, put a, a, a timeline of, of 2060 when we are in an emergency, we are presently at 1.2 degrees, such as global warming, and we can get to 1.5 before, uh, before 2030. We can get to 1.7 before 2030. We can even get to 2 before 2030. So if uh, 2030 is a critical time for us, any time between this decade, 
is a critical time for us. Why wait that long to reach net zero? Nigeria relies heavily on oil to drive its economy. And so a transition towards cleaner energy will come at a great cost. Already, the government has begun the process to transition the country to a gas economy by 2030. But with the country importing most of its domestic gas, the cost has become a huddle. The cost of gas today is kg at, at, the, at, the pump, at the pump station, not at the uh, local vendors. At the gas station, it's about 600, 600 naira per kg. And uh, 12.5 kg will give you about at about uh, 7,400. Uh, comparing this to how much they sell firewood in the rural areas, even in the urban areas, I would, people, most people will go for uh, firewood than this gas. And if people go for firewood than buying expensive gas, then government hasn't solved any problem. The Nigerian government is currently running an ambitious flagship project to connect 5 million households and 25 million people with solar power as part of its energy transition plan. Some people are installing solar panels in their homes, but the high cost involved means this is largely out of the reach of many. So the green energies, are they really cheap? So when you say businesses should turn to green energies, where the solar panels and uh, the additional um, installations do not come cheap, how, how does that really work? So eventually we would need to get to a point where taxes are taken off, custom duties are taken off. And then this, um, 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 I, don't, I don't like to talk about uh, uh, subsidies, no, but this technology should come in cheap. Cost involved in turning to green energy remain a challenge. Developed countries had pledged to provide $100 billion to developing countries by 2020 to attain climate change objectives, but they are yet to do so. If they could match their words with action, then countries like Nigeria might realize their net zero carbon emission targets. DG Badimasi, CGTN, Lagos. Banks provide direct funding to the economy, and that's why economists and environmentalists are betting their hopes on banks to guide capital towards the green spectrum of the economy and away from high-polluting, high-energy-consuming industries. A new risk reporting standard called the TCFD has been launched. CGTN's Jia Cheng caught up with Wenjian Fang via Zoom. Fang is the general manager of the Bank of China's London branch. Jia Cheng raised questions regarding the business impact of the TCFD on banks and filed this report. The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures is the full name of TCFD. It was created in 2015 by the Financial Stability Board. It is a standard used by companies, banks, and investors when disclosing climate-related financial risks. That comes in handy for banks in lending decisions that have environmental impact. Bank of China officially became a member of the TCFD in February this year. And we believe the TCFD framework is quite suited to the banks. And as it has been formulated by central banks from the G20 countries, jointly with top-tier financial institutions, so we see supporting TCFD as a beneficial and pioneering attempt to explore the best practice in climate risk control and information disclosure, together with our peer groups across the world. Global banks are gradually increasing their green finance services while applying greener standards in credit assessments, lending, and portfolio management. As a major Chinese bank, what are Bank of China's business targets for green finance? And we have now set up some quantitative targets for the first time. For example, Bank of China will provide 
no less than one trillion RMB in financing to green industries during the period of its 14th five-year plan, and the proportion of green finance still increased year on year. For the domestic corporate green lending, for example, the overall five-year growth rate should be no less than 5%, and if possible, even as much as 10%. However, the world is not yet ready to go fully green. Most major economies are still trying to strike a balance between fossil fuels and green energy. But banks, as sources of funding to the real economy, do have a strong say and potential leadership in a green reform. On the one hand, we want to support the new energy by taking on more green projects. On the other hand, we cannot just stripping away brown assets like taking off clothes. A simple approach of reducing brown assets could also expose financial institutions, you know, and to uh, to, to undue risks, you know, for example, credit risks, reputation and litigation risk, etc. And TCFD is designed to provide a framework to guide financial institutions towards better assessment and pricing of the impact of their carbon exposure and climate risk, including arising from entities beyond our immediate you know, balances. TCFD data could also help financial institutions get a more comprehensive understanding and assessment of climate risk exposure and control, while helping them to make a more sensible, balanced, and appropriate allocation between the brown and green assets. Fang noted that the green progress will initially limit the funding channels for borrowers in high-energy consumption industries and pressure their business performances as a result. But in general, as Fang said, companies, banks, and governments are on the same page to go green. The task now is to carefully and prudently manage the green transition so that lenders, borrowers, and the economy as a whole will firmly adapt to the new economic model for the future. Xiaocheng, CGTN, Beijing. It's estimated that Africa only accounts for some 2% of the global carbon market. But analysts say there's major potential for growth. Enoch Sokolia takes a look at how carbon trade initiatives in Kenya are mitigating the effects of climate change. This is how carbon offsets work. When one company or group removes a unit of carbon from the atmosphere as part of their normal business activity, they can generate a carbon offset. Now, other companies can purchase this carbon offset to reduce their own carbon footprint. In a nutshell, a company with these carbon credits, whether generated or purchased, is allowed to emit certain amounts of greenhouse gases. Nancy Gdega, the Kenya Country Director of the African Wildlife Foundation, says this then creates incentives for heavy factories to pollute less and communities to restore forests. And we are not just looking at forests and forest restoration, we are also looking at landscapes. If we are able to leave our wildlands, our, you know, our wildlife habitats as they are, you know, without conversion, without fragmentation, then they should also be able to attract you know, the carbon uh, credits. So it's not just about forestry, so there is a huge potential for Africa. Nearly 20% of the world's tropical forests are found in Africa. The continent, therefore, has the ability to deliver over 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide emission reductions annually. If you look at the bond challenge already committed to restore about, uh, we talk about 100 uh, million hectares uh, in Africa. Uh, Kenya has 5.2 million hectares of this. So that commitment is there. So are we able to get credits from that commitment that we have already made for restoration? But as reforestation efforts are stepped up in parts of Africa, Kenya's main power generation company is playing its part.
So far, the Kenya Power Generation Company, Kanjen, has contributed to offsetting on annual basis 1.5 million tons of carbon dioxide equivalent. For companies like Kanjen, the market is booming. It recently sold an equivalent of 4.6 million tons of carbon emissions and over the last 18 months, it plans to auction more. The company has so far registered six clean development mechanism projects. The clean development mechanism projects, like this one, just a few kilometers from the Kenyan capital, have contributed to national development by providing clean energy that ensures improved environmental quality, positive health impacts, and increased productivity. But more importantly, they play a crucial part in climate change mitigation. Being a clean source of power generation, geothermal energy can play a major role in decarbonizing the power sector and increasing the world's energy security. The Kenyan company intends to incorporate additional geothermal, wind and solar projects and further reduce carbon emissions annually. Enoxicolia, CGTN, Gong, Kenya. Various African leaders have hailed a speech delivered by Chinese President Xi Jinping at the opening ceremony of the fourth China International Import Expo. The leader of Zambia's Party for National Unity and Progress has described Xi's speech on international trade as refreshing. Let's listen in. China uh, is advancing the principles of multi, uh, multi, uh, multi uh, multilateralism where you, 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 you open the country, basically, to all the, the countries of the world. So China is engaging itself in, in fair trade. That's just a testimony to fair trade. Multilateralism itself speaks to uh, openness to trade. Uh, and so China is becoming a new frontier for free, for free trade. And, and more so access to... Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, CGTN, uh, Africa Live, uh, dealing with a myriad of issues uh, impacting Africa and uh, the entire world. And uh, that's going to uh, conclude uh, our Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast for today, um, today being November 7th, uh, 2021, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, <clears throat> if you'd like to have access to our program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, you can uh, share these programs uh, with other potential listeners as well uh, via email, blogs and websites, as well as social media networks. You can read the Pan-African Newswire at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with uh, the music of Miles Davis, uh, the, of course, uh, tribute to Jack Johnson, the legendary album, this is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.